Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. In the French countryside, down a dusty dirt road and past an old farmhouse, 23-year-old Yvette Dominici fanned her face and sighed. She clutched her lower back to ease the pressure of her pregnant belly, then returned to her laundry. It was two pairs of pants, which normally wouldn't justify a pregnant woman standing out in the August heat, but she had to get these stains out. She scrubbed anxiously, trying to focus on the clothes and not the ruckus happening nearby. Down the road, dozens of villagers had gathered around a new 1952 station wagon. Some came close to the car, while others watched warily from the shade. They seemed to be eagerly awaiting something, or someone. Soon, the shouts of the local police, the gendarmerie, revealed what was really going on. This was a crime scene, a brutal triple murder. The officers urged the crowd to keep their distance, but the villagers didn't listen. They continued to walk about the scene without a thought to the damage they could do. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. I'm Carter Roy. Today, we're talking about France's crime of the century, the murder of a noted British biochemist and his family and the complicated process of small-town justice that left us with more questions than answers. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. By the time police commissioner Edmund Sabay arrived in the village, the sun was already sinking. With a population of just under 400, the town of Lourdes was more like a loose collection of farms than a bustling village. Still, the countryside was breathtaking. French oat grass swayed with the wind, and the air smelled clean and sweet. But the commissioner didn't have time to appreciate the natural beauty. As he approached the main road, he felt a chill. And it uh, wasn't from the country breeze. It came from his welcome party. The public prosecutor, an examining magistrate, and a court clerk. None of them were glad to see Commissioner Sabay. He was late. Very late. The three men had been standing in the hot sun for hours waiting for him to arrive. Now, legally, they weren't allowed to touch the crime scene until Sabay could investigate, and the gendarmerie, the military police who generally handled rural crimes, didn't appreciate the big city commissioner taking his sweet time. But Sabay didn't pay much attention to their opinions. He'd had to wrap up a different case that morning, and it had taken time to gas up his vehicle for the long trip to Lures. And, of course, he had to stop for lunch on the way, though he didn't feel the need to explain himself. He launched directly into his investigation without even bothering to greet the captain of the gendarme. His superiors back in Marseille had already briefed him on the situation. Around six that morning, Three bodies were found in the sleepy village. A man, a woman, and a ten-year-old girl. The entire family had been massacred while camping. Sabay thought he knew what he was getting into, but as he approached the station wagon on the side of the road, he wasn't prepared for such a gruesome scene. The woman's body lay next to the car, covered by a blanket. When Sabay lifted it, he saw she'd been riddled with gunshot wounds. On the opposite side of the road, the man seemed to be intentionally hidden under a camping bed. Around him, the ground was soaked with blood. And then there was the young girl. Her body had been found on a hill across a nearby railway bridge. She'd been beaten badly and it was clear from her wounds she'd been struck multiple times on the face. Sabay was appalled, not just by the brutality of the crime, but by the state of the scene. No one had bothered to block it off. Journalists and bystanders had clearly trampled through the area for hours, and though local officers weren't legally supposed to handle evidence, it was obvious to Sabay that things had been tampered with. The officers explained they'd been trying to figure out who the victims were, but none of the locals could help because the murdered family wasn't from the area. No one recognized them. In time, the authorities were able to identify the victims by a label on their suitcase. They were tourists visiting from England, Jack, Anne, and Elizabeth Drummond. The fact that they were foreigners only put more pressure on Commissioner Sabay. He needed to wrap up the case quickly before an international scandal blew up. 
But things only got more tense when law enforcement learned Jack was actually Sir Jack, a well-regarded biochemist who'd been knighted for his work during World War II. He, along with his wife, 44-year-old Anne, and their young daughter, Elizabeth, had come for an innocent tour of the French countryside. It was supposed to be a family trip, a time for bonding and a rare chance for Jack to tear himself away from work. Instead, it ended in tragedy. The story was horrific, and the state of the crime scene only made the investigation more challenging, but Sabe was hardly surprised. At 44 years old, the commissioner had been around the block a few times, and he didn't think much of rural cops. The shoddy work done by the gendarme before he got there only fed into his biases, and now it was up to him to clean up their mess. But Sabe felt he was the best man for this job. Though he'd grown up in the city, his father was a distinguished investigator known for solving difficult crimes in rural areas. Sabe believed he had an intuitive understanding of the so-called peasant mindset. Sabe's condescending attitude isn't surprising. There are stereotypes about the divide between rural and urban people almost everywhere. City dwellers often see villagers as less sophisticated and more superstitious, and rural populations can view city folk as corrupting immoral influences. That said, some unique circumstances in 1950s France colored Sabay's perception. A big one was vernacular. In Lourdes and many rural areas of southeast France, people spoke a unique dialect known as Provençal. So it was almost unintelligible to most French city dwellers. Except for Sabay. The fact that he could understand it was part of the reason he was put in charge of the case. It was also one reason for his inflated confidence. Unlike some of his colleagues, he could converse with the residents of Lures on equal footing. They wouldn't be able to hide any secrets behind a language barrier. But first, Sabe had to make sure they would talk to him. Which wasn't a guarantee especially after local authorities gave him such a frosty greeting. Oh, now, you might think Sabay would want to play nice, but instead he did the opposite. He started by telling off the gendarme for not blocking off the crime scene. So once he'd made the worst first impression possible, Sabay well, did some actual work. Or as much as he could get done before dark. He had the scene photographed, scheduled time to talk to the press, and attended a post-mortem. The doctors who examined the bodies weren't used to dealing with murders, so their notes were limited. They didn't distinguish between entry and exit wounds or speculate about the killer. Still, they established the basics. 61-year-old Jack Drummond had been shot twice. One bullet pierced his right lung, while the other tore into his liver. Death was likely not instant, and a trail of blood at the scene indicated he had tried and failed to crawl across the road following the attack. Yet his body was found on the other side of the street, suggesting someone had moved it after the fact. Why would the murderer 
or anyone else for that matter, have dragged his body across the road. Jack may have been hidden under a camping bed, but there was blood everywhere. The murder would have been obvious to anyone passing by, and Anne's body only prompted more questions. She was riddled with seven bullet holes, likely four shots in total, but there were no indications of any other violence or sexual assault. The Drummond's 10-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, had been brutally beaten with a blunt instrument. She suffered massive damage to her skull from being clubbed twice just above the nose. Even following such major trauma, doctors believe she could have lived for up to an hour afterward. And now remember, her body was found across a railway bridge some distance from her parents. While Jack seemed to have been moved, Sabay assumed that the little girl ran from her assailant first and was murdered where she was found. A couple of hours later, his suspicions appeared to be confirmed. As soon as Sabay left the postmortem, his assistants informed him they discovered a busted rifle stock in the river, about 20 yards away from Elizabeth's body. This presumably was the blunt instrument used to bludgeon her. And the stock wasn't all they found. Downriver, they recovered a semi-automatic American carbine. It may sound a little shocking that the stock, the wooden butt of the rifle, had broken off, but most of the damage to the weapon predated the murders. The carbine was old, a relic of the Second World War. It was probably abandoned by an American soldier over a decade earlier. Since then, it had been held together with a bicycle cable and a metal band, so, well, it wasn't exactly in good condition. And based on the number of shots fired into the Drummonds and their general inaccuracy, Sabay believed that whoever committed the murders was not an experienced marksman. Commissioner Sabay jotted this all down and tried to withhold judgment for the time being, Despite a bumpy start, he was already feeling confident about the investigation. After all, they had the carbine. As he ended work for the evening, he gleefully told the gathered journalists that the weapon would talk. It wouldn't be long before he regretted those words. On August 5, 1952, Police Commissioner Edmund Sabay was called to the French village of Lourdes to investigate the triple murder of a British family. In the first hours of his investigation, the murder weapon was discovered and the bodies were examined. So far, things were going smoothly. Well, they already had material evidence, and though scientific expertise was lacking in the village, Sabay wasn't concerned. Like many French officers at the time, he favored motive-first police work. Now, today, forensic evidence typically carries the most weight in a courtroom. Hours and hours are spent mathematically determining the angle a gun was fired from, the precise time of death, whether wounds are defensive or offensive, and so on. Even back in the 1950s, this emphasis on forensics was common in countries like England, where the victims were from, but the French took a different approach. 
So, while Sabay wasn't happy with the tampered crime scene, he didn't dwell on it. To him, what was most important was insinuating himself among the villagers and getting them to talk. Sabay was convinced the old American military carbine belonged to a civilian, and it was a reasonable guess. After World War II, abandoned military firearms were often scavenged by farmers and stowed away. So, if the carbine belonged to a local, the question was, who? The commissioner figured this wouldn't be hard to find out. On a small town like Lourdes, it was hard to have secrets. Someone had to know something. Sabay spent the second day of the investigation trudging back and forth between farmhouses. Using the Provençal dialect, he began by asking the villagers what they knew. When that didn't work, he started demanding, then threatening them. He assumed he'd be able to throw his weight around and browbeat someone into telling him everything. But all his bully routine got him was deafening silence. It didn't matter who Sabay interviewed, no one was forthcoming. The most basic of questions were met with, I don't know, or I don't remember. Even children gave him the cold shoulder. It was like they'd all agreed on a collective code of silence. After a while, it seemed eerie, as if everyone in town was keeping a single secret. Sabay had nowhere to turn. What do you do when an entire village is clearly lying to your face and yet you don't have any hard evidence to prove them wrong? How do you get someone to slip up in an interrogation if they refuse to speak? The solution, he decided, was to meet their stubbornness with his own. He'd break through their silence with sheer persistence. After a few days of painfully circular interrogations, Sabay finally managed to assemble a loose account of events, an account mostly pieced together by the recollections of one family, the Dominices. Gaston and Marie Dominici were elderly farmers who'd lived in the area for years. Their farmhouse was the closest residence to where the Drummond family was found, less than 200 yards down the road. One of the first questions Sabay asked the couple was whether they'd had any contact with the Drummonds. They both shook their heads. No, they hadn't spoken to the family. In fact, they didn't know that the Drummonds were camped down the road. Sabay was skeptical, but as he gathered their account of that night, Gaston and Marie did admit they'd seen something. 77-year-old Gaston claimed that around 11.30 p.m. he'd gotten out of bed because a vehicle pulled up beside the house. He peeked out his bedroom window to find a motorcyclist who spoke to him in a language he didn't recognize. Gaston shouted at the driver to leave, which he did, apparently laughing as he sped off into the night, away from where the Drummonds were camped down the road. After that... Gaston went back to sleep. Then, around 1 a.m., he was woken up by gunshots. There were about five or six shots in total. Then silence. 
no screams or other disturbances. So rather than investigate, I guess Stone just rolled over and went back to bed. Commissioner Sabay was dumbfounded. It was a hot summer, and the Dominici slept with their windows open. If 10-year-old Elizabeth had been killed while running from her attacker, how could there have been no screams? Well, the couple didn't have an answer for this. All they knew was that after the gunshots, everything was quiet again. Gaston slept for the rest of the night until 4.30 when he had to take his goats out to pasture. Sabé raised an eyebrow at the story, but decided to move on with his questioning. There were more Dominices to interview. Gaston and Marie lived with one of their sons, 33-year-old Gustave, and his pregnant wife, 23-year-old Yvette. And Gustave mostly corroborated his old man's story. Gustave also said he saw the motorcyclist from his bedroom window around 11.30. And he and his wife also heard gunshots around 1 a.m., but didn't investigate. He claimed he was too afraid to go outside, but he wasn't able to fall back to sleep, so he stayed in the house until around 5.30 a.m., then left to do chores. The first thing he did was check out a recent landslide near their alfalfa fields. That's when he walked across the railway bridge and discovered 10-year-old Elizabeth's body on the hillside. Okay, so Sabay spent some time thinking about the family statements. Gaston and his son's stories were nearly identical, word for word at certain points. But they shouldn't have been. Sabé realized Gustav's bedroom was in a different part of the house from his father's. Their windows faced different directions. So how did father and son both see the motorcycle clearly? The next day, the commissioner returned to the farm to question the Dominices again. Trying to sound casual, he asked Gaston what language the motorcyclist was speaking. Gaston told him it sounded like Italian. When Sabay pointed out that just the day before, Gaston insisted he couldn't recognize the stranger's language, well, the old farmer became infuriated at the insinuation. He was so angry, he even brandished his cane at the commissioner. Sabay had clearly touched a nerve, but it only added to the mystery, because there were even more discrepancies. The Dominices also claimed that the phantom motorcyclist left the farm an hour and a half before any shots were fired. If they were making the incident up to pin the murder on whoever the driver was, why would they claim he'd driven away from the scene before the attacks even happened? Four Dominices, Gaston, Marie, Gustave, and Yvette were in complete lockstep with their stories. Was it possible they'd gotten the time wrong? Or maybe it was correct, and they were attempting to cover for something else. But what could it be? Well, the mystery deepened when Sabé spoke to the Dominici's older son, Clovis, who lived in his own house apart from the rest of the family. Sabé cornered him at the rail yard where he worked. It was a public place, so a crowd formed. In moments, they were surrounded by journalists and curious rail yard workers. 
Sabay took the opportunity to show Clovis the carbine. At the sight of the weapon, Clovis crumpled to his knees and nearly fainted. As the crowd of journalists and residents pressed closer, he recovered enough to say he'd never seen the gun before. Then he refused to answer any other questions. It was another ridiculous situation. Sabay believed Clovis had recognized the weapon, maybe even knew who owned it, but he somehow failed to get anything out of Clovis after that. Sabay was floundering. His methods weren't getting him the answers he wanted, and he couldn't even figure out why the Drummonds were killed in the first place. It didn't look like a robbery, there were no signs of sexual assault, and the Drummonds themselves were harmless tourists. The vicious beating of young Elizabeth was especially baffling. Still, Zabay wasn't going to give up, and he definitely wasn't going to ask for help. He was convinced his approach would work in the long run. Eventually, one of these farmers had to break and give up the Dominices. So he pressed on with his questions, getting lost in a tangle of contradictions. When he asked Gustav what he did after discovering Elizabeth by the railway bridge, Gustav claimed that he immediately believed the girl was dead, but didn't bother to check. He was afraid of leaving fingerprints on the body. And when asked why he didn't try to find the girl's parents, Gustav said he simply didn't think of it, implying he may have been in some kind of shock. Later, though, he told police he didn't try to find the girl's parents because he assumed they were the ones who'd murdered her. But he couldn't explain why he'd thought that. Instead, after finding Elizabeth's body, he ran toward the road and flagged down a passing driver he recognized, Jean-Marie Olivier. Though Gustave had a motorcycle, he passed the responsibility of alerting the police onto Olivier. About half an hour later, Gustav's brother Clovis arrived at the farm with a couple of friends. Then local police finally made it to the scene a little after 7 a.m. They were a bit slow because along the way, they'd stopped to talk to Gustav's wife, Yvette. Gustav had told her to bike to the gendarme to make sure Olivier had informed them about the body. Yet again, he'd asked someone else to speak to the police rather than taking his own motorcycle. And it seemed odd that he'd sent his very pregnant wife. Well, the exact reason for that was never determined, though Gustave later claimed his motorcycle had a flat tire. Either way, the gendarme didn't question the decision. Instead, they started poking around the crime scene without blocking it off or establishing a perimeter. And that was about all Commissioner Sabay could establish in the early days of the investigation. Frankly, he could hardly believe his ears at some points. The situation was worse than he'd feared. The first few hours after body is discovered are typically the most crucial for gathering evidence. Those had been completely wasted by untrained and unprofessional investigators and Sabay only had himself to blame for arriving so late. With the crime scene tampered with and the villagers refusing to talk, 
Sabe was in an impossible position. Until he could get someone on the inside to trust him, he was going nowhere. Fast. Okay, so far we've covered what happened in the hours just before and after the Drummond family's murders. At least, according to what the residents of Lures reported during their first few days of Commissioner Sabay's investigation. If any of it sounded confusing and convoluted, just imagine how Commissioner Sabay must have felt. By the end of it, the only thing he knew for sure was that the Dominici family was hiding something. Their stories were full of holes, and even more suspicious was the fact that their testimonies matched virtually word for word. So, on August 7th, 1952, Sabe got a search warrant for their farmhouse. He and his men turned the place upside down to the family's horror. 33-year-old Gustav had the most dramatic reaction by far. He laid up in his bedroom with a doctor's note. He said he'd been overcome by nervous exhaustion due to the hordes of journalists buzzing around him 24-7. This was true. Sabe wasn't the only one being hounded by the media. But unfortunately, Gustav's excuse meant he couldn't be questioned that day. And that only added to Sabe's irritation. Especially after the farmhouse search failed to turn up anything useful. There was no stolen property belonging to the Drummonds, no secret stash of weapons, and even more baffling, still no motive. Yet Sabe refused to shift his focus from the Dominices. The very next day, he came back to bring Gustav in for questioning. A day of rest apparently did Gustav good. He patiently withstood Sabe's interrogation for four long hours. Though, just like before, his testimony bordered on nonsensical. For Sabe, it must have felt like deja vu. Gustav stuck to his previous story. He still claimed he saw the motorcyclist, despite the fact that he couldn't possibly have seen him from his window. And he also maintained that he hadn't checked to see if Elizabeth was alive because he was afraid to leave fingerprints on her body. In response, Sabe likely resorted to his usual tactics, seizing on the contradictions and trying to bully his suspect into cracking. But Gustav would only shrug when the holes in his statements were pointed out. His story never changed. Gustav clearly wasn't some mastermind, but he wasn't afraid to be silent. In fact, he preferred it. In a strange way, he was an unbreakable suspect. At the end of the day, the authorities had to let Gustav go. They took him back to the farmhouse, warning him they'd be back again soon. Sabe must have thought long and hard about what to do next. Gustav's stonewall routine was effective, but it only delayed the inevitable in the commissioner's eyes. He still felt like he was on the verge of finding the answer. He just needed a new strategy to get there. But before he could make another move... The Dominici surprised him with a new defense. See, local members of the Communist Party and friends of Gustav started protesting. 
against what they called police harassment. The press picked up the story and turned the case into a political flashpoint. See, the communists believed big city police officers were unfairly targeting a family of poor peasant farmers. While joining them were British tabloids who jumped at the chance to criticize the French authorities. So far, English law enforcement hadn't attempted to interfere with Sabay's investigation, but the press didn't have the same restraint. One paper, the Sunday Dispatch, even put up a reward for any British readers who could solve the murders, since they believed Sabay was too incompetent to do so on his own. Though not everyone was on the Dominici's side. Predictably, once the communists leapt to the family's defense, right-wing newspapers took the opposite position. They defended Sabay's tactics wholeheartedly and attacked the Dominici's. Suddenly, the case was spotlit on the international stage, and involving the public and politics only made the investigation messier than it already was. And now, to be fair, the French police had unjustly accused Communist Party members of crimes before, and it makes sense that the media thought the same had been done to the Dominici's. Commissioner Sebay had narrowed in on them without significant evidence. It seemed like he hadn't seriously considered any other possibilities or handled things with grace. And even if his suspicion of the Dominici's wasn't political, it was possible Sebay was letting his frustration with the residents of Lourdes affect the case. On the other hand, Sebay had legitimate reasons to suspect the Dominici's, and the alternate explanations for the murders proposed by the communists were uh, a little far-fetched. The newspaper L'Humanité advanced rumors that Jack Drummond was a secret intelligence agent for the British. He definitely had friends in high places in the government, and if he was a spy, the writers argued, then the murders could be politically motivated. The premise sounds more like a spy movie than solid detective work, and it obviously would have suited the communists if the culprit was a foreign assassin rather than a humble farmer who was a member of their party. Still, unlike Sabay's theories, this explanation did offer a clear motive. It also broached a good point. Why hadn't Sabay spent more time looking into the victims themselves? Maybe the motive was personal. Yet the commissioner had spent all his time scaring farmers. He was so focused on the Dominices that he practically ignored what should have been a fundamental part of the investigation. Because the Drummonds were tourists in Lures, he just assumed personal history hadn't led to their deaths. It's probably obvious by now, but Sebae wasn't really one for taking constructive criticism. But even he could see the tide was turning. The time had come to change tack. He decided to back off of the villagers and let the heat die down. He hoped that in time, the residents of Lures would warm up to him and tell him what they knew. He probably wasn't happy about it, but this was the only way forward. He officially suspended the investigation on August 15th, a French holiday, and coincidentally, Gustave Dominici's birthday. But that didn't mean Sabay took the day off. 
Fueled by an endless stream of coffee and cigarettes, he watched his suspects from afar during the local celebration. While kids played bocce ball and the villagers danced in the square, Gustav and Yvette chatted with their neighbors. It seemed the recent publicity had turned them into local celebrities. Sabe tried to glean what he could from their body language and behavior. Clearly, Gustav was stressed. But then again, it would have been odd if he wasn't. There was no dramatic show of guilt or case-cracking revelations. Sabe took a last drag from his cigarette and crushed it under his boot. He was supposed to be winning the locals over, but they avoided him like the plague. It was infuriating. All he could do was keep quiet and grind his teeth, waiting for the right moment to make a move. And that moment didn't come on August 15th. For the next week, he kept watching and waiting. But the longer he held back, the more the rumors spun out of control. There was rampant speculation from British and French reporters, and the rumor that Jack Drummond was a secret agent refused to die. The police station was deluged by psychics and cranks with their own theories about the case. Though things were getting out of hand, Sabe continued to seek out and interview new witnesses over the next two weeks. But despite everything, he couldn't tear his suspicions away from the Dominici family. Until he had to. Because sometime around August 29th, the police received an anonymous letter that turned the case upside down. The writer claimed that they recognized the murder weapon. They'd seen the gun a couple years before the Drummond murders hanging on a kitchen wall in Lures. It wasn't in the Dominici's farmhouse. It belonged to one of their neighbors. Commissioner Sabe had to face the prospect that he'd been barking up the wrong tree the entire time. But he told himself none of that mattered. Now that they had a new lead, everything was about to change. Thank you again for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next week for part two of the Dominici Affair. For more information on the Drummond family murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Dominici Affair, Murder and Mystery in Provence by Martin Kitchen, extremely helpful to our research. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story, and the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Amin Osman and Alex Garland, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, and sound designed by Alex Button. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau, our head of production is Nick Johnson, and Spencer Howard is our post-production supervisor. I'm your host, Carter Roy. <laughs>